0: There is one very simple key to having positive relationships. Whether we're talking about family relationships, relationships with friends, co-workers, or brethren, there is one simple key. Simple to know, not always simple to follow. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 provides it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Whatever relationship you're talking about, if you follow this principle, it's going to be a positive relationship. That is, instead of pursuing your own course and your own desires and your own wants, Take a look at the other person's relationship and look at what it is that they need and what they desire and what they want. What do they want you to be? And if you strive to do that and strive to put their interests and their desires and their needs first, it is going to be a positive, worthwhile relationship. And this principle needs to govern all of our relationships. And it needs to govern our relationship with God more than any other relationship. If we're going to walk hand-in-hand with God, we need to follow what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says. We need to look at what interests God. We need to examine what God wants. We need to see what it is that God is looking for from His people and strive to be that. If we can do that, then we'll be walking hand-in-hand with God. So what is it that God wants? What is He looking for? We find an answer in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 says, But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This is what God's looking for. He's looking for true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. This is the foundation of our relationship with God. If we want to walk hand in hand with God, our relationship has to be founded upon worship. That's what He's looking for. That's what pleases Him. That is what He desires. But what does that mean? God's looking for worship, but what have we got to be doing in order to be worshipers? True worshipers, worshiping Him in spirit and truth. That's what we want to examine tonight. True worshipers, worshiping in spirit and truth. Now, I'm going to warn you, we've got a lot to look at tonight. So, I'm going to be going very quickly. I've got a lot of the scriptures up on the screen to help us to reference them. Some of them are We're going to be moving quickly, but we will have outlines that will be on the table in the back. And if we run out, we can always make more copies. But we've got lots of things to look at here, and some surprising things, I think. I know when I studied it, some things that I learned uh, really kind of surprised me, shocked me, even humbled me. And so I hope that I can portray that to you in a godly way based on the Bible. Before we answer this question, would you bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we lift you up and we praise your name. We ascribe to you glory and honor because you are the great God who has created the world, who has continued it and sustained it and provided us with life. You have given us food to eat and air to breathe and clothes to wear and homes to live in. You have provided for the cycle of life. You caused the rain that, that drenches the earth and produces life and allows us food to eat. Father, you're the one that, that shaped the mountains. You're the one that dug out the valleys. You're the one who designed the rivers and the oceans. You're the one to whom all things must give honor and glory because you are indeed our father and creator. We could not exist without you. You are the great God from whom all blessings flow. You are the awesome and powerful sovereign ruler of the universe. And we are humbled before You. We are unworthy, Father. Unworthy of Your love and unworthy of Your grace. And because of that, we are even more thankful that You have bestowed it upon us anyway. Help us, Father, to be true worshipers. Forgive us for too often being false worshipers who allowed our hearts and minds to be divided away from You. Forgive us for too often allowing ourselves to be caught up in our own will and our own ideas and not pursuing a relationship with You based upon Your Word. Father, we love You and we praise Your name because You are worthy of praise. Thank You for loving us. Through Your Son's name we pray. Amen. The very first thing we recognize is that God is looking for true worshipers. True worshipers. Emphasis on the word true. John used this kind of construction several times in his gospel. In John chapter 1 and verse 9, he said, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Of course, that was Jesus. We recognize in John chapter 6 and verse 32, he says, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Again, it was Jesus. Jesus later said in John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. This concept of the true light, the true bread, the true vine, the true worshiper is the idea of being the genuine article. Not a fake, not a copy, not a cheap imitation. God doesn't like posers, He doesn't want pretenders. He wants us to be worshippers, not in name only, but in reality. He wants us to be The kind of people that truly and totally reflect exactly what worship is. We're not supposed to be fake worshipers or halfway worshipers or false worshipers. He wants us to be the true worshipers. And in John chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our God is not a fake God. Our God is not one of the false idols. Our God is not a pretender. He's not a false claimant to the throne of the universe. He is the one, the only, the true, and living God. And because of that, He deserves for us to be true worshipers. What exactly do we need to do to be true worshipers? Look in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. And you'll notice in verse 2 of Jeremiah chapter 7, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 2 it says, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Jeremiah 7 is about worshipers of the Lord. But when we read the entire chapter, we find out these are not true worshipers. They're false worshipers. And by contrast, I think we can learn from them what it means about our lives and what we need to do to be true worshipers. There's three keys, three major mistakes that the folks in Jeremiah chapter 7 made that I want us to learn about so that we can avoid and be true worshippers. The very first thing is, we must not put our trust in the forms and patterns. Instead, we must put our trust in God. I want you to notice this. In Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 4, God said to the Israelites, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. In verse 12, He said, go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first. A lot of us don't know this, but Jerusalem was not the first home of God's ark, of God's house. Shiloh was the first once they finally came into the Promised Land. So he says, go to that place. Go to Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. What was the problem here? The Israelites were trusting in the fact that they were going to the right temple. They were not trusting in service to the right God. Now listen, don't don't misunderstand. Did they have to go to the right temple? Absolutely. If they had gone to the wrong temple, if they had worshipped at the wrong altar, their worship would have been just as vain. But the problem was they were going to the right temple. They were sacrificing at the right altar. They had the right people offering the right sacrifices. And so they trusted this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And so everything's okay. It doesn't matter what else we do. We're at least going to the right temple. We're doing it in the right way. But you see, they got their trust in the wrong place. Can we make that same mistake? Brother, i got to tell you, I think Jesus could just as easily say to us, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the church of Christ, the church of Christ, the church of Christ. Do not trust in these deceptive words. We worship without instruments. We sing without instruments. We sing without instruments. We take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday. Only on Sunday, only on Sunday, only on Sunday. We don't teach tithing. We don't teach tithing. We don't teach tithing. How many people are resting in and trusting, well, we're just doing the right things, but no longer are trusting in the right God? Now again, don't misunderstand. Do we have to follow God's pattern? Absolutely. But we've got, to get, we've got to get it in the right order. Our worship has to be based on serving the right God and loving and honoring the right God. Because when we are doing that, then we'll follow His patterns and His forms. But when we are trusting in the forms and the patterns, we're going to have a problem. It's going to be easy for us to slip away because what if we've gotten it wrong? You see, if if we're trusting in the right God, if we've got the form and pattern wrong, what are we going to do? Change, because we love God. But if we're trusting in the form and the pattern that we're all convinced is right right now, and we find out we're wrong, we won't change. We'll slip away. Further, further, if we're trusting in the pattern. Instead of them serving the right God, we're going to end up making the other two mistakes that they made. Are you ready to see what those are? The second problem, they did not obey God. If we want to be true worshipers, we have to always obey God. Here in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, Will you steal, murder commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Verse 23, but this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they didn't listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they'll not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they'll not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. True worshipers are obeyers. These Israelites were not true worshipers because their worship was not the, did not progress from actually serving God. It was not the continuation of their obedience to the Lord. You see, I just want you to think about what happens. See how point one leads to point two? If I'm trusting in the patterns and the forms, and I think I've got the patterns of worship right, and I've got the forms of worship right, I'm doing all those right things and checking them off the list, now I can live however I want to, because at least I go to the right church, and at least I sing the right way. But when we're trusting in God and serving the right God, His way, we realize that service is supposed to be all the time. And that worship is supposed to be the natural progression from a life of obedience. That's not what the Israelites were doing. The Israelites were not obeying God. They were disobeying God. Worship did not come from their obedience. Instead, worship was something they did to try to buy God off because they weren't serving Him properly. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, Jesus said in response to Satan's temptation, He said, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. You see those two words there? Worship and serve. Serve and worship. Those two ideas are used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Most often, we see it when God is telling the Israelites, now don't worship and serve false gods. The implication is, worship and serve only Jehovah God. But here's the issue. Worship is supposed to emanate from service. If I am not serving Jehovah God all the time, if I am compartmentalizing and living however I want to and then thinking that I can go to church and make up for it or I can say my nightly prayers and make up for it, that worship is not doing any good and that worship is not true worship. True worshipers worship because they serve God all the time. And the third key that we need to recognize is that we have to worship Only God. In Jeremiah chapter 7, again, verses 9 and 10, talk about stealing, murdering, committing adultery, swearing falsely, making offerings to Baal, and going after other gods that you have not known. And then in verses 17 and 18, Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. They were not true worshipers of God because they did not worship only God. They were making offerings to Baal and offerings to the queen of heaven and worshiping the sun and the moon and Ashtoreth, and Molech, and all the other gods. But true worshipers worship God alone. Now, we might very easily sit back and say, oh, we got that one covered. None of us have a statue in our house that we go bow before and pray to. None of us honor uh, Ishtar, or Baal, or Molech, or any of those. But do we remember a couple of passages like Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19 that says their end is destruction, their God is their belly? Those whose God is their own physical passions that they serve and worship and bow before, but then they say their nightly prayers, hoping to make up for it. Or Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, that says, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, covetousness, which is idolatry. Materialism and coveting of material things. God says that's having another God before me. We can't be true worshipers if we have other gods. God is seeking true worshipers. He's seeking the genuine article, the real deal. No cheap imitations, no copies, no halfway measures. True worshipers. And if we want to be true worshipers, we have to trust in God, not in the forms and patterns we've developed. We have to obey God always, and we have to worship only God His way. God's looking for true worshipers. But notice it says he's looking for true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and truth. For so the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, at first, this may seem to be what's called a tautology. Now, what that means is, is an unnecessary repetition. Well, this is obvious. If they're true worshipers, obviously, what are they doing? Worshiping. And yet Jesus wanted to emphasize... He wants true worshipers who actually worship. True worshipers who actually worship. The word worship here, the verb, is found in the active voice. It is an action. It is something we are supposed to do. It is not a feeling. It is not what we are. It is not an attitude. Though all of those things may accompany it but worship is something we are supposed to do. Well, what is that? What are we supposed to do if we're supposed to worship God? Jesus says, "Hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Excuse me just a second. I thought I was going to sneeze. Uh, The true worshipers are supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It does, Jesus did not say that the Father is looking for the true churchgoers who go to church in spirit and in truth. It's not what he says. Sometimes I fear that we have made a mistake. Unbiblically, we have called what we're doing here our worship service. Now, I'm not saying it's unscriptural. I'm not saying it's a sin to do that. But I just want you to recognize, you can search your Bible backwards and forwards and not one single time does the Bible ever call what we're doing here a worship service. But because we have done that and said that, and that has just become just our common way of referring to what we're doing, worship service, worship service, when we hear worship, what do most of us think? Going to church. In fact, in that first point, how many of us, as we were hearing that before we got to this one, thought, oh, when I go to church, i got to be a true worshiper. I'm not allowed to just go to church and and do whatever I want. Because we equate worship with going to church. And the Bible never does that. Are we worshiping here tonight? Yes, absolutely we've worshipped here tonight. But Jesus said that God is looking for true worshipers, not just true churchgoers who go to church in spirit and truth. And here's the other thing I I hope we recognize. Jesus here does not say he is looking for people who will perform five actions in spirit and truth. You see, because we have called this our worship service, then we've turned around and labeled everything we do within this assembly as worship and said, well, what do we do? Well, the Bible demonstrates that we sing, we pray, we give of our means, we take the Lord's Supper and we teach the Word, and so that's worship. And so we come back to John 4, verses 23 through 24, and it's almost like we just read it in there without even knowing what Jesus is actually talking about here. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will sing, pray, give, take the Lord's Supper, and teach the Word, the Father, in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to sing, pray, take the Lord's Supper, give. You see the point? And that's not what it's saying. The Father is seeking true worshipers. But what is worship? The English word worship comes from the idea of worthship. It's the idea of ascribing worth, value, worthiness to someone else, and by implication, unworthiness to ourselves. But we have a problem with that English word worship. Our English word worship is, is very gated. I mean, it's just very broad, and it can be used in many different ways. And because of that there are multiple words in the New and Old Testament that are sometimes translated worship. And some folks today make the mistake that, well, any word in the Greek that, or the Hebrew that can be translated worship, it all runs together and it's all the same thing. And that's just not the case. And so tonight, I am not really interested in what every word in the Bible that could possibly be translated worship means. I'm concerned about what it is that God is looking for according to this verse. What is this worship? That he is saying he is seeking. The word that we find in this verse is the Greek word proskuneo. According to Zodiate, Spirit of Zodiates in his word studies of the New Testament, he said this literally means to kiss toward someone, to throw a kiss in token of respect or homage. But here's what's very interesting about this New Testament word. This New Testament word is not about just its literal meaning. Rather, this word, because of the culture, was actually a word picture. It, it brought up a picture in people's minds. And Zodiates goes on to explain it. He says, the ancient Oriental, especially Persian mode of salutation, between persons of equal, equal rank, was to kiss each other on the lips. Now I just got to tell you, we'll stop there for a second, I sure am glad that we don't live by the ancient Oriental Persian custom, because I just got to tell you, I'm not kissing James Wood on the lips. I love James, but I'm not doing that. Thank you. All right. But so so that equal rank, was to kiss each other on the lips. When the difference of rank was slight, they kissed each other on the cheek. When one was much inferior, he fell upon his knees, touched his forehead to the ground, or prostrated himself, throwing kisses at the same time toward the superior. This was the picture. You see, the point was, is that it's not about, we're not equals. See, now, we'll come into the assembly, if we were living by this custom, and we would give each other equals, holy kisses. That's not what we do with God. With God, we prostrate ourselves on the ground, and we toss kisses toward Him. It demonstrate His superiority and our inferiority. His worthiness, our unworthiness. His power, our weakness. His honor. Our shame. This is what worship is. To come before God and demonstrate that He is superior and we're inferior. And what's interesting to me, and I encourage you to do this sometime, search for this particular Greek word if you have. If you've got a a computer Bible program that you can search for these words, search this one. And then also search its Hebrew counterpart, Saha. And if you get the outline, it's got the Strong's number so you can use that. Saha and Proskyneo, and I want you to notice that repeatedly, this is the exact image that's being discussed in worship. I just want to I just want you to see this. Look in Job chapter one, in verse twenty. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Psalm 95, six, Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Isaiah 44.17, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, And going into the house they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 9, And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Matthew 28 and verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came up, and they took hold of His feet, and worshiped Him. Now, I I know that doesn't say fall down, but how do you think they took hold of His feet? Okay? They fell down on their faces and took hold... Of his feet. In Acts 10 and verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, guys, y'all know what this passage is, right? This is talking about a guest coming into an assembly of a congregation, and because he is so convicted by what they did, he fell down on his face. And started worshiping God. Now, what would we do if one of our guests came in and prostrated themselves on the ground to worship God? That's exactly what he was doing. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10. It says, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the the throne. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 14. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now listen, having seen all that, I don't want to claim that it's only worship if we're laying on the ground. That's not true. I understand that worship is about the heart. It's about the spirit not necessarily about the body's position. But I have to tell you, my study this week shocked me. Well, not just this week, just really in general as we've been preparing for this. Uh, my study has, has shocked me because I'll tell you what, the one thing that our New Testament and Old Testament counterparts most recognize as worship is one thing few of us have ever done. And it's certainly not something any of us do in our worship service. The one thing that they recognize most as worship, we don't ever do. Now, the Muslims, they'll pull out their prayer rugs and they'll get down on their knees and they'll prostrate themselves before their God. The Catholics, while they get up and down and kneel and do all that stuff, the Pentecostals, they lay out before God all the time, but not us because we follow the pattern. Oh, wait. Guess what was actually a part of the pattern? And I wonder, why is it that prostration has never made it on our list of acts of worship? Because that's what they thought was worship. Prostration. And I just find it interesting. I just find it interesting that that thing that they most thought of as worship is the something that we wouldn't do, and the something that I'm afraid to tell you that we ought to do because I'm afraid I'd get fired for it. Well, that's liberal nonsense, bowing down before God in our assemblies. But that's exactly what they did. You know, I'll tell you one of the other things that interests me about that is how many people today are asking, are we allowed to lift holy hands in our assemblies? And how few people are asking, are we allowed to lay prostrate in our assemblies? I think that may say something about the modern concept of a relationship with God. Because you see, to them, worship was very much tied to prostration, bowing down and kneeling. Now again, I recognize that the more important aspect of worship is the heart, and it is the spirit. So I'm not about to suggest that you've all sinned because you haven't bowed down in our assembly tonight. I just think we need to note this, give some consideration, at least especially in our personal lives, in our personal worship. But the more important part about what's going on in our hearts when we're doing that, what is that? Interestingly enough, the Bible almost never defines exactly what worship is. If you try to make this study just like I've tried to do, you'll get on your computer and in the concordance you'll open up and you'll look for worship and you'll find that over and over and over again the Bible just says so-and-so worshipped. He went over here and worshipped. I'm going to go over there and worship. And then it doesn't tell us exactly what they did. Just they worshipped. And the people were supposed to know what that meant. But there are a couple of parallels that I think we can find in Scripture that help us understand what it means to worship God. The first thing, in Psalm 132 and verse 7, Psalm 132 and verse 7. And the reason I want us to understand this particular point is because it's going to be very important when we start talking about worshiping in spirit. 132 verse 7. Here the psalmist says, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Let us go to his dwelling place. Worship means going into the presence of God. That was their concept, going into the presence of God. That was why in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 12, Hezekiah had demanded that all the people only worship before the altar in Jerusalem. Because in order to worship, you had to go into the presence of God. You had to go to His dwelling place. So worship is about coming into the presence of God. Then we notice a very interesting parallel. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10. We've already read that one tonight. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That was actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. If you'll turn there, notice what it says. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. When Jesus was responding to Satan, when Satan said, Worship me, God actually quoted a verse that said fear. He used the word worship, though. You see what that demonstrates? Worship is actually prompted by fear, by awe, by reverence, by understanding the powerful God who is our judge, and so we fall before Him, humble before Him, recognizing His power over us. And let me sit back and say, well, this is just some kind of ethereal awe. Let me show you a couple other passages where that word fear is used. In 2 Samuel 1.14, David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That was when the Amalekite had told him he had killed Saul. He said, Why weren't you afraid? You should have been afraid because when you put your hand out against God's anointed, you get judged. And then in 1 Chronicles 13.12, talking about David's response to Uzzah being struck down, David was afraid of God that day, and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? That's the fear he's talking about. We're supposed to fear God. God is our judge. He is the awesome, powerful God who can not only kill the body, but cast the soul into hell. How can we do anything but prostrate ourselves with humiliation before Him to show His worthiness and our unworthiness? The third thing is in Psalm 99, verses 5 and verse 9. Psalm 99, verses 5 and verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Worship is the idea of exaltation. It's coming into the presence of God because of His great power and His judgment and exalting Him. And then flipping back to chapter to Psalm 96 and verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. There's that tremble and fear again. But what are they doing as they worship and tremble? They are ascribing to Him the glory that is due His name. That's worship. We can see an example of it in Matthew 14, 33. In the boat, Jesus is still the waters. And they worship at His feet and ascribe glory to Him, saying, truly, You are the Son of God. This is worship. At the very least, spiritually, metaphorically, prostrating ourselves before God, casting down our golden crowns, wiping away any claim to worthiness that we had, to declare God's glory, to exalt Him and humble ourselves, to proclaim Him as superior and us as inferior. Him as the master, us as the servants. That is worship. Jesus went on to say that we're supposed to worship Him in spirit. Worship in spirit. What does that mean? Worship in spirit. Let me begin by sharing with you a mistake that I've often made with this passage. For a long time, as I would talk about this passage with people, I would say, well, look, that can't be it. What what you're saying there can't be true because, well, because Jesus is talking about a change in things. And what you've just described is exactly what the Israelites had to do. And we're not talking about something new, but, but I want us to think about that again. What, the mistake that I have made is I, I made verse 21 and verse 23 as absolute parallels. In verse 21 it says, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then verse 23 says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And I made these parallels. Essentially, what I thought they were saying was, in that day when true worshipers are supposed to start worshiping in spirit and truth, that's when it won't matter what mountain you worship in. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And in fact, let's look at another passage that uses a similar construct to understand this. In John 5.25 and then in 5.28, Jesus says, An hour is coming and is now here. You see that? That's that same phrase that we have right there. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then in verse 28 it says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. Both passages talk about an hour that is coming and then talk about something, an hour that is coming and is now here. But I want you to notice something about this second one. In this this second construct here, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. What hour is that? What's the hour when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, and they'll come forth? Those who have done good works to life, those who have done evil to eternal damnation. Here's the thing I want you to notice about that verse. What Jesus is talking about there was completely and totally in the future. In fact, even for us. It hadn't even happened yet. That hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Lord, and they'll come forth. But now let's back up to this one. Hour is coming and is now here. Well, he can't be talking about this same thing, can he? Because, well, that hour is coming. It hadn't gotten here yet at all. But this one is coming and is already here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You see, even if Jesus was speaking, the hour was already here that if you listen to the voice of the Son of God, you would have life spiritually. Here's something I want you to notice. Not only was it there in Jesus' day, It had been there for a long time. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 says, as it talks about the Israelites who followed Moses, it says they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. How did the Israelites have life? Because they drank from the rock that is Christ. What Paul is saying is there is a sense in which since the beginning of time, those who were following God were drinking from the rock that is Christ. They were heeding the words of the Son of God, and because of that, they had life. In fact, look in John chapter 6, verse 53. I want you to notice what Jesus says here. In John chapter 6 and verse 53, He tells the folks who are following Him, and they want real food. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. But then notice in verse 63 he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You see, when we drink from the rock that is Christ, we are gaining life because what that is is listening to his words. So do you see what's happening here in these two passages? There is something whose hour has not come yet at all. It's completely in the future, but there's something here whose hour is coming and is now here that actually there's a sense in which it's always been like this. And so we wonder, well, why does he use this strange construction, the hour is coming? Well, the point is, is that there is an ultimate fulfillment of this that's about to take place. Jesus, through his death and burial and resurrection, when we listen to his words, we ultimately have that true life that comes from him because the plan is finally being totally fulfilled. Now, see what, you see what an hour, an hour is coming and is now here? didn't mean that it hadn't gotten there yet or it had just started. So now let's take this back up here. We've got something whose hour is coming and something whose hour is coming and is now here. I just want you to think about this. Worship in spirit and in truth.